I was um, raised in uh, a family of, uh, my dad was a artist who was a Buddhist. He became a Buddhist in 1971 when he hit bottom as an alcoholic and he got sober and he utterly refused uh, uh, to do the uh, 12 steps in a Judeo-Christian manner. Uh, so he got really into, uh, at the encouragement of his sponsor, he got very into Buddhism at the time, which meant my household suddenly went from a chaotic, uh, insane environment to suddenly one where there were zafus and uh, meditation tapes. And my mom was, um, as much as Buddhism was important to my dad for his sobriety and his mental health, my mom was an avid Freudian. She started uh, uh, analysis, I think, in the 1940s or 50s when she was in her 20s. And she was, uh, the bookcases so were lined with books by Freud and Buddhism, and uh, I nev it never occurred to me as a teen that the Buddha and the psychologists that my mother loved to read had any different agenda whatsoever. To me, uh, the goal of both quite clearly is a teenager reading through these books and listening to my parents talk about their loves was to end human suffering uh, through uh, awareness, to cultivate true happiness and peace through non-material ends, through spiritual endeavor, uh, to allow people to gain insight into the behaviors and thoughts and um, that which causes them suffering. So I've always read uh, both through the exact same prism, the exact same perspective. And uh, over the years, I have still marveled at the, how many uh, overlapping insights the Buddha had 2,500 years ago that parallels some of the wonderful insights that contemporary psychology has brought to us. I guess I would be known as a secular Buddhist um, in that I read uh, and I teach from a very uh, therapeutic, psychoanalytic, psychological perspective. And I'm unapologetic about that. Um, there are plenty of other wonderful, wonderful teachers who teach it from a metaphysical and other uh, traditions. So, uh, and in New York, there's they're all around. So you have your choice. Um, one of the things that fascinates me uh, after Freud, Freud viewed the id as this kind of primordial, bestial, sexual, aggressive urges that were constantly trying to go through into conscious life. And the ego, its role was to somehow keep 
the id, our, our core, basic, sexual, aggressive urges, uh, filtered or translated in ways, sublimated as it were, in ways that were acceptable to other adults. So, for instance, people sublimate their aggression by picking up kickboxing, or people sublimate their sexual urges in all kinds of endeavors. My favorite is I live in, uh, for most of my life, I've lived in a very uh, Hasidic neighborhood, and you should watch those when they're reading the Torah, the bouncing back and forth. That's called sublimation, folks. <laughs> I'll let you guess what's being sublimated. Uh, no, 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 it's not that at all. Uh, <laughs> After Freud, starting with Anna Freud, Naomi Klein, and the great object relations theorists of Winnicott, uh, Wilfred Bion and all those people, um, they started realizing that the problem was not so much the drives, but actually the repression, the defense mechanisms that we use to uh, keep very natural human urges, impulses, behaviors, desires, even our, um, part of our memories that are unpleasant, we keep out of awareness. Defense mechanisms are very basically ingrained habits that people use to make themselves or keep themselves unaware of impulses they have that they feel will threaten their relationships with other people. It works like this. When we're very young, we're born extremely vulnerable. We need other people to establish security. And any urges, impulses, needs that are very spontaneous and natural, but that are poorly tolerated by our caretakers or those around us will first be amplified, seeking attention, but if that strategy fails, eventually an infant will settle on what's known as repression. It will, every time it feels those impulses that its parents cannot tolerate, it will switch, change, do something to feel otherwise, to present something different, because the infant will sacrifice anything to maintain a connection with the adults around it that is secure. So, for example, if a child uh, feels scared and it grows up in a family where you're not allowed to express fear, but you are allowed to express anger, the child will deflect or develop a reaction formation where it switches its sadness to anger because that's what it sees. Or it could be the opposite. It could be could grow up in a family where anger is not permitted to be expressed and only uh, intellectual or uh, 
uh, humor, sarcasm is allowed to be expressed. So that's a reaction formation. We, as Winnicott, the great psychologist, explained, we start out trying to express what could be essentially called a true self, and that there's spontaneous, authentic needs, impulses, urges, desires. We might draw spontaneously, we might sing, dance, we might, uh, if you're a boy, you might put on dresses, if you're a girl, you might pick up a baseball bat. We, can, we are not constrained by gender expectations, we're not constrained by any of the social norms. We are fluid, and of course, through the socialization process of interacting with our caretakers and then teachers and then other school children, we are shamed, rejected, bullied, uh, and if we wind up in, of course, the wrong environments, into what Winnicott called conformist behaviors, which means we begin to act out what he called a false self, an inauthentic self, where even though young boys might not always feel authentically interested in sports, they might feign interest to get win social acceptance from their father, from their teachers, from the other boys. They might pretend that they're interested in uh, bands, or skateboarding or whatever that when they're not really. And it's the same for girls growing up into women. They are pressured into uh, behaviors, tropes, paradigms that keep us uh, seeking and establishing secure connection with others. Because there's nothing more frightening to the human being than ostracization. I'm sure you've heard about the rampant trend of, of teens who kill themselves after sexual shaming. Uh, they kill themselves specifically because of the ostracization, the shame that they feel by their peers. There is nothing more... Uh, human beings are set up, our brains are set up, the left-right hemisphere a setup specifically to establish secure relationships with others. And we will bend and twist and desperately conform to win love. And to keep ourselves doing that, we need to repress, using defense mechanisms, the urges, impulses, even the memories of our abandonments we will repress because they too feel too loaded, too unsafe. So anything that comes up that feels like it might threaten our relationship with others, at first we will consciously suppress. Suppression is a conscious action. And then we will unconsciously repress. Repression is an automatic, unconscious action that keeps... <coughs> threatening impulses and urges, behaviors, needs out of our awareness so we don't risk expressing them. Now, what happens is Winnicott noted that a lot of our most threatening impulses and urges are felt in the body. So many, as we'll see, of the defense mechanisms that we develop 
essentially make us disembodied. We lose, push away, uh, we push down awareness of what we feel emotionally, somatically in the body. Because that's where the uh, impulses that are uncomfortable, the fears, the sadness, the loneliness, the worry of we're about to be abandoned and rejected, they're felt here, here, in the shoulder. So we live very often up here as a defense mechanism, as we'll see. Before I go through a list of some of the classic defense mechanisms and compare them with the Buddha's insights, I'd like to talk about the Buddha's insight, which is actually very, very similar. The Buddha had a sutta called the Madhupindika, the ball of honey sutta, where he notes uh, he brings up once again uh, one of his more interesting concepts, the Anusayas, which are latent, unconscious, automatic tendencies that the Buddha says we've, in essence, uh, pushed beneath the level of awareness. And he says in that sutta, we keep these urges and impulses uh, out of our awareness, even though we act out on them, at times, we keep them out of our awareness by our, one, fixation with the world around us, and two, he says, our fixation with thoughts and papancha. Papancha is spiraling, self-obsessed, speculative thought. What's going to happen to me in the future? What do other people think about me? How do I compare to others? These self-centered thoughts arise as a strategy to keep us unaware of the underlying energies, the anusayas, that are uh, based on our felt lack of security in the world. And these anusayas, he says, are constantly sensually craving, we're clinging for attention, we're looking for security, we're, we have all this stuff going on, but we keep ourselves unaware through, in essence, a defense mechanism. Fixation on the world, fixation on ideas. Very, very, very similar. So I'm going to go through some of the most standard uh, defense mechanisms that are noted by uh, Anna Freud, Naomi Klein, Winnicott, and I'm going to compare them with the Buddha's insights which he provided into how we uh, remain unaware of these core underlying impulses that we have. The Buddha called it, in essence, a state of delusion. We don't see how we're causing ourselves suffering. And the Buddha said that these underlying uh, energies, when we don't observe them and we don't uh, take care and are aware, what happens is we wind up getting in conflict with others. We wind up getting in arguments and, uh, uh, you know, debates and uh, problematic interactions. And it's interesting because 
the great 20th century psychologist noted the same, that as we repress uh, very, very human, very, very uh, core energies, even though they might not be the, act, the impulses that we want to act out on, a lot of the impulses that we repress are fear-based, are um, aggressive, are... Uh, perhaps uh, sexual to a degree that would be unwelcome in the world. But the problem is if we repress them to the point that we don't even allow ourselves to feel these difficult impulses or emotions, if we don't allow ourselves to feel them and hold them and observe them and honor them, then what happens is we act out on them in really, really uh, stilted ways that cause even more problems. And repression itself has a really, really sad, unwanted byproduct. If we are inauthentic with people, if we conceal our sadness, if we can only act out on our humor or intellectual or our... Uh, if we can only be creative, but we can't allow ourselves to express needs, fears, then what happens is we are never really truly intimately connecting with other people. We only really establish true intimate connections with other human beings when we can feel, observe, and articulate through verbal and nonverbal communications, are the true entire palette of our human experience. If I conceal from you my, uh, my experiences of loss, my woundings, my sadness of growing up in the the childhood that I had, if I conceal that from you, I am not being authentic and I can never really feel truly loved by you. It's only when I risk uh, presenting the entirety of my emotional experience can I know true love and acceptance. So the sad byproduct of having all these defense mechanisms as we keep other people from truly getting to know us. And I have to say that the toll we have to pay for true love in this world, for true acceptance, for true connection, is we do have to risk rejection and abandonment. At times when we express our depression, people will not be able to hold it. There are people who won't be able to be around it. They'll just find it frightening. And in such cases, we have to remember that rejection can be a protection. Because if somebody rejects us at the first sign of being sad, lonely, scared, confused, lonely, whatever, in essence, they're doing us a favor. You know, heaven forbid... We should really be in a mess, in a difficult, conflictual, really a dark place, and then reach out to them. So, um, 
we do have to be able to tolerate abandonment to be truly authentic and open. So what are some of these defense mechanisms that we use to keep our authentic feelings at bay? Um, one of them is uh, busyness. In clinical psychology, often referred to as avoidance, the Buddha used the word uthaka, which is a hindrance called restlessness. And basically, it's an attempt to keep ourselves so busy and so scheduled and running around from one obligation to another to take on so much that we never stop and notice just how unconnected we are to others, how vulnerable we feel, the lack of deep purpose we might uh, be feeling. Um, we don't, we try to outrun our feelings of loss and grief. A, a monk I've been reading, Ajahn Medhadani, Medhadan, Met. Meda Dandi, Meda Dandi. I've never had to pronounce her name out loud. <laughs> she's actually, um, she's a wonderful nun. I referred to her as a monk. I don't know if that genderized her or not. Uh, Ajahn Medhanandi. And she wrote, uh, she, she's written uh, a couple of essays in the Amaravati collection of nuns' writings. And she wrote a, a very, very insightful article called Coming from the Shadows. And she writes, in quotes, Our busyness is more than shifting around to make things right. It's symptomatic of a deep inner angst. We have never allowed ourselves to feel and expose how wounded we are. In our busyness, we are not living our true lives we are not authentically connecting to what we are feeling. I mean, bravo, I can't say it any better than that. I mean, nailed it. So that's about as insightful as it gets. Uh, sleepiness is uh, what the Buddha called tinamita, and Western psychologists call it a form of dissociation. Uh, you know it. You had it. It's when you're sitting at Dharma Punks, chatting away with somebody, and then I hit the bowl to start the meditation. The next thing you know, you're... Now, why does that happen? When one moment you're filled with energy, you close your eyes, and the next moment you're drifting off. Uh, not all of you, some of you. Um, this is not simply because we're tired. Uh, true, we can, of course, due to our busyness, we can schedule ourselves to the absolute max and then exhaust ourselves, but a lot of it is also we use sleep and tiredness and as an avoidance strategy to not touch the difficult emotional experience that we've been just keeping out of touch that we haven't allowed ourselves to truly touch. Uh, I have a friend, really wonderful, long-term pr practitioner like myself, who went on a really a long-term silent retreat, and throughout it he said he had long sleeps and really restful uh, 
meditations, and right after he left the 28-day retreat, he fell completely the fuck apart, uh, mentally. But he didn't experience any of it on the retreat because uh, he just felt, I think, on the retreat too vulnerable. And it was only when he was back around other people that he could allow himself to touch the depression that was needing to be felt right beneath the surface. So we can use sleepiness, naps, uh, people suffering depression can use it as an avoidance strategy and sleep for many, many hours a day. Another practice is what's called splitting. Buddha hinted at it in his Anusaya. Splitting is acting out on impulses, we very human impulses that we need to express. We act out on them frantically and then compartmentalize them. I had somebody I worked with years and years and years ago. Um, not going to reveal anything about him to keep it all confidential, but he grew up in a family where sexual uh, behavior was shamed at a very young age. And so he grew up with a great deal of uh, sense of... Uh, he felt the sexual impulse was very, very threatening because it threatened his relationship with his mother. So he would ritualistically act out his sexual urges by once a month, practically the same day of the week, going to the same... What do they call it? Keep houses... Peep shows. Uh, and rushing in and uh, jerking off frantically and then skulking out. And it took, it took a really long time of working with him for him to acknowledge this. He had so demonized and shamed and compartmentalized a completely natural impulse uh, that the only way he could express it was by splitting it off from the rest of his life in this ritualistic, denied, uh, circumvented behavioral outlet. Some people use it with binging with food, where it's very secretive, and it becomes... Um, uh, they've been so withholding of pleasure and, and uh, allowing themselves to uh, feel any uh, sense of of pleasure, and especially when it comes to eating that, or they have kept at bay difficult emotions, and then they will uh, binge on food in secret and then deny it. Um, idealization, what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, is uh, the tendency to project onto others uh, or onto uh, memories ideal qualities because we can't allow ourselves to feel the truth. For instance, I've worked with many people who at first will claim when they sit down and I'll ask them to tell me something about their childhood and they'll say, oh, I had wonderful parents. Yeah. <laughs> Come back two months later and then the story changes significantly. Which is not to say that uh, everybody discovers that their parents were awful. By no means. It's just that we can hold some of the abandonments, some of the faults, the times that we didn't get our needs met can be felt to an infant as so annihilating, so deeply, deeply threatening that we wipe away the entire... We don't acknowledge anymore that it happened. 
And so we'll claim that, oh yeah, my mother, my father, my sister was completely loving. Uh, and that doesn't mean that they weren't when we opened up to the experiences that were threatening or were less than, than wonderful. But what happens is when we develop this, te this tendency of uh, idealizing, we then do it to other people in our adult lives. It's a very common tendency for people who idealize their childhood to idealize people in the beginning of relationships. They'll meet somebody, they'll think, oh, she or he is so great. I just met somebody, it's so amazing. Uh, it's wonderful. They're perfect. This is the one. Well, certainly there must be something about them that, you know, you felt at times wasn't, I mean, nobody's perfect. No, no, no! They're perfect! <laughs> this is it. I'm so. I'm. This is it. I found her. I found him. Everything's so great. We never argue. Uh -huh. We agree on everything. What happens then, of course, is that eventually, at first, the red flags or the difficulties are repressed are not allowed into consciousness, and eventually they mount up to the point where they burst through, and then the person is completely abandoned. From, because from the very beginning, the other hasn't been seen as a fully rounded human being, just as a uh, idealized, two-dimensional characteristic, rather than a fully flawed human being with skills and drawbacks. A couple of others, intellectualization, the tendency to explain away emotion-based behavior as if there was, you know, as if it was an entirely rational decision. For instance, uh, 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 we can explain away, uh, oh, yes, I, of course I asked you to move in with me. It makes sense, we won't have to pay as much rent. Or of course I asked you to marry me because it'll be better for our taxes. <laughs> or, of course, I, you know, so we deny the emotional content of our decisions. Humor, deflecting mechanism, can be great in doses, absolutely, can establish rapport and make us feel connected, but if it's used consistently to deflect really dis, uh, unsatisfactory, damaging, ex wounding experiences, not good. My family was amazing at it amazing at it. There was nothing that wasn't joked about, even though uh, uh, in retrospect some of it was unbelievable. Rumination. We have, uh, people very often will ruminate on new relationships. Uh, rumination, what the Buddha called papancha, is a tendency to fixate on one part of our lives, especially on one person, so that we don't have to feel the lack of purpose, fear, loneliness, uh, lack of uh, happiness, lack of creativity in the rest of our lives. We look to focus on one person. Why isn't this person returning my call, phone calls or texts? I texted them five hours ago. They're not responding to me. This rumination is very often a desire to avoid acknowledging other really, really important areas that are being neglected in our lives. So, 
both psychology, finally, and Buddhism have uh, techniques to reveal the repressed to us. Because very often we can keep things, feelings, emotions so out of our awareness for so long, we cannot even know for sure what is an authentic feeling from a false behavior Just we've developed just to get love and attention. We can hold out of awareness our true needs and our true memories for so long that it can be very difficult to recover. So in therapy, some of the tools they use, of course, are dreams, thematic apperception cards, which are they'll hold up a card of two people doing something that's very abstract, you really can't tell, and the therapist will say, what do you see happening here? And you'll find yourself going, I see an evil father who doesn't appreciate the hard work <laughs> of his daughter who's remote and uncaring and not seeing how often she shows up for him. And the therapist will go, we just saved a lot of time. Uh, there's the AAI, the adult attachment interview. Uh, and the reason why, by the way, thematic apperception cards work is because the creative mind, uh, which is built on not using uh, explicit associations, but right hemisphere associations, which are uh, much more emotionally based. When you create, when you write, when you make up something out of the blue, you're relying far more on your right hemisphere than when you create a logical explanation. The right hemisphere, of course, is threatening to the left hemisphere, because that's where all those emotions that we've repressed are kept. But if you are an artist, or a musician, or if you just are challenged to come up with a story out of the blue, you won't be able to keep some of that emotional content out. It will just come out whether you like it or not. Um, so those are some of the tools. The uh, therapists also use free association. Uh, I use that a lot too as a Buddhist mentor. And uh, transference, which is People will project onto therapists and onto other people feelings that they had for people earlier in their lives. They will project them on. So the therapist who generally acts in a kind of, um, hopefully an empathetic, uh, neutral way, will find that the person that they're seeing will suddenly become very defensive or very aggressive or very guarded or very fearful, and what they're doing is they are expressing the emotions that they don't generally allow themselves to feel, but it comes out in that uh, therapeutic environment. Now the Buddhist process is what's called Yoniso Manasikara, it's practiced in Vipassana meditation where we sit and we remove all of the distractions from the mind that we usually use to keep uh, our emotional content at bay. We remove the external distractions, the stories, the narratives, and we just open, much like in free association and therapy, we open to whatever arises, and like I instructed you in the meditation, we then, when a thought, an image, a memory arises, we just allow it to be there, we say, it's okay, you're welcome, and then we investigate the somatic experience beneath it. In so doing, eventually, we can begin to open up 
content, emotions, memories that we've not allowed ourselves to feel, that we've kept compartmentalized and out of our awareness. A good example of this is um, Jack Kornfield writes in his book, A Path with Heart, that when he first became a, a monk, he was uh, obsessed with his ex-girlfriend, uh, that he would be able to see her again. And he noticed every time he thought about her, his chest started to feel tight. And so after a while, he just put aside, he just allowed the thought of the girlfriend to just be there, but he focused on the somatic expression in the chest, the tightening there. And after a while, earlier images and memories that he had blocked of never really feeling truly, deeply appreciated by his mother came up. So he had deflected the feelings of abandonment by his mother onto his ex-girlfriend, even though he was the one who left the girlfriend. He, he essentially projected onto her the abandonment. And it was only by first focusing on the somatic that he could open up and reconnect with those early feelings of never truly being loved and connected. So in that way, in Buddhist practice, we can reconnect with the repressed. I'm just going to close with quoting from Winnicott's wonderful essay, The Concept of the False Self, which he wrote in 1964. And Winnicott wrote, Artists, artists have always concerned themselves with the idea of a true self. And the betrayal of one's true self is unacceptable. The present-day drama is the search for the truth within. The truth within that is not square, sentimental, successful, or slick. That's what he's referring to as the false self. Square, sentimental, successful, or slick. And the message there is that the stuff that we keep at arm's length, the emotions, the difficult memories, the challenging urges and impulses that we need to hold, they might be messy, they might not make us successful. They might not be slick. They might be awkward. They might not be what uh, cements our, uh, you know, makes us completely uh, lovable by everyone in the world. They might not make us popular, but they are what make us authentic. And they are the stuff that allows us to truly, deeply connect with other human beings. Without opening to it, without being able to hold it, we'll never know a true deep bond. And that's really, I think, one of the great goals of the spiritual journey. I hope there was something in there worth thinking about. I thank you for listening. If you do use this time to leave before the questions, if you can, donate, because uh, it's always a struggle to pay the rent, and we really could use uh, the help. So I thank you.